Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And let's read starting in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Well, as we have stated many times this year already, we began looking at Acts chapter 2 to once again rediscover the principles in which we founded this church upon 23 years ago. And as we've been looking at these together as a church and rediscovering the value of these principles, we discover that once again, that something that may be 2,000 years old is as relevant today as it was when it was first written. As we looked at chapter 2, we saw that the church began in the power of the Holy Spirit. They then, number two, engaged the culture in evangelism, answering the questions that the culture was asking, and then, of course, leading that discussion to the person of Christ. Giving them an opportunity then to receive Christ as their Savior, 3,000 souls were saved, according to verse 41. But after they then came to saving faith in Jesus Christ, what to do with them next? And again, many have indicated that they believe that the church needs to reinvent itself for our current culture because we have become irrelevant uh, in our culture. And so therefore, we need to show why we are valuable to the uh, populace once again. However, though, I don't believe that reinventing ourselves is necessary. I believe rediscovering what God has originally said is necessary. And as a result of rediscovering these things, applying them once again, that we may be the church in which God originally designed us to be. Now, Acts chapter 2 is not a comprehensive look at the study of the church, which is called ecclesiology. Of course, you have to go through the entire New Testament to get a a a full picture of the operation of the church. However, though, the principles laid down for us here are very basic and very simple, and I believe that all churches need to embrace them. Again, a church, when they begin, will start with an objective. They'll start with a purpose, and that purpose will be outlined somewhere within a mission statement or a core value statement of some sort. And therefore, the church uh, will be Uh, geared towards that. It'll be structured towards that, architected towards that. Everybody in the church will be knowledgeable of that. And as a result, it'll be the common thread that holds that church together. Some churches have made the uh, pursuit of evangelism, seeing people come to saving faith in Christ, their sole objective. And so they've created an environment to do just that. Others believe that no social connections are where things are needed today, 
And so that church will then develop themselves around a social networking type of atmosphere. And often in those cases, the pastor becomes uh, more of a cruise director than a pastor uh, because they're constantly looking for one activity after the other to do. And, uh, you know, and, and not that there's anything wrong with connecting people at church. I just don't think that's what God set the ultimate focus upon for the church. But we here at Calvary believe, based on Scripture, that the church was created for the believer in Jesus Christ, to be educated, to be equipped, to fulfill the ministry that God has called you to personally, and therefore allowing the kingdom of God to expand through your participants in the body of Christ. And so I think that that's a very important element that you understand from the very beginning. We see each and every one of you as a participant in the work that God is doing through the body of Christ. And no one's position is more valuable than someone else's. And you may say, I don't, I don't see how, how how's that possible. No. I'm doing what God has called me to do within the body of Christ, to teach you and to equip you. And though my position carries with it a lot of responsibility and a higher degree of accountability than maybe some others, I don't see myself any more important to this congregation than someone who teaches in our Sunday school. Because I believe that those words that we'll hear from our Lord, well done, thou good and faithful servant, will be uh, qualified by the manner in which we fulfill the ministry in which God is calling us to fulfill. So whatever that ministry is, and I've actually heard Billy Graham actually say this, he says it doesn't matter if it's the ministry that God has called him to or an individual that leads that one individual to Christ. It doesn't matter. As long as we are faithful to what God has called us, that's what matters. And that's why I try, you know, to, to, to display and to example for everybody here that, you know, I don't feel I'm any better than any of you. Well, some of you. No, um, I'm kidding, of course. But I definitely want to give you the impression that you matter, because you do. You matter to our little fellowship here at Calvary. Each one of you matters. And when each one of us puts forward and uses the gifts that God has given us, what an incredible little thing uh, we can become, you know. So we need to once again rediscover. And so what they did with these 3,000 is that they began to implement four very distinguished elements in the church. Number one, teaching, the apostles' teaching. The apostles then began to educate, to teach them, and in that education, educating process, equipping them uh, for whatever work that they were going to apply themselves to. For fellowship, meaning breaking down the social barriers and the, the demographical, demographic hurdles of that time to allow them to be in close proximity with one another, and especially Christ, to the breaking of bread, which I emphasized last week, I see a heavier emphasis on the development of personal relationships, intimate personal relationships, uh, around communion, yes, that's definitely a part of that, but not a complete uh, example of the breaking of bread, and of course that's looked at in verse 46, when they were breaking bread in their homes, 
and receiving their food with gladness. But today we come to the one that I feel our church needs to once again rediscover. And that is prayers. I have taught on prayer I don't know how many times in the last 30 years. I've taught from different perspectives. I've, I, I've gone Old Testament, New Testament aspects of prayer. Last year, <laughs> I was listening to one of my messages, I think it was last year that I gave, and I, and I finally came to the conclusion, as the great theologians at Nike did, just do it. All right, let's just put it into practice. Let's stop talking about it, you know. But I noticed that prayer is always one of those great difficulties for any church. Prayer is constituted within a church body in three different places. Number one, amongst the leaderships. Number two, amongst the congregation. And number three, individually and privately of the members of the congregation. And I don't know of anyone that I've ever approached on this subject who has indicated to me that they feel as if their prayer life is where it needs to be. They always see that there could be improvement. And in the confession of that, I see humility and I see an understanding. Yes, we can always improve on our prayer life. But I believe that on this side of heaven, Even with all of the revelation given to us about prayer throughout the Bible, I don't think we still fully understand what a privilege it is. And I don't know how to instill that into each one of us. The incredible privilege that prayer is and that we have been given and granted as a child of God. I believe that when we enter into heaven, we will all probably at one point or another realize that prayer was the most neglected aspect of our Christian life. Today, I'm confident that many Christians, you know, instead of running to God, run to Google. But there are grave deficiencies between God's answers and the answers that Google will provide for you instantaneously. I don't have to ask for a show of hands of how many people have used Google and gotten search results or answers back that have absolutely nothing to do with what you're asking. In fact, last night we were watching a a movie together and all of a sudden my Google went off. It heard a word that it reacted to or whatever and started giving an explanation in Portuguese or something. I don't know what language it actually was, but it was absolutely no help to me and the timing was terrible. Nothing beats God. And one of the things that I have learned, and this is where I want to focus on this morning, concerning prayer, is that it is one of those things that is actually so natural. In fact, I make the argument that the Jewish people who we read about in our text this morning, prayer was as natural to them as breathing. And it was never their last option. And of course, I've made this comment several times. I've had numerous people come to me over the years and say, Pastor, I'm in such a dilemma, and I guess all that's left for me to do is pray. 
Oh, yes, if you're that far down, then just pray, my friend. No, you know what I really want to tell him? I'm going to tell you right now. If you, may have, if you would have prayed in the beginning, maybe you wouldn't be in the position you are currently. So go suck it up, cupcake, and come back to me after you prayed. You know, I went to a uh, pastoral school in the inner city of Chicago. No. Um, prayer is never the last resort. It's always the first option. It's always the first thing that we should go to whenever we are confronted with, some, with anything that challenges us in any way. I don't believe there's any prayer too small to pray or any prayer too large that God cannot do something about it. And as I began to consider that in and of itself, I realized that often what hinders our prayer is because we don't fully know and understand the God in whom we pray to. We don't understand who He is. We don't understand His approachability. We don't understand His desire to respond to our prayer. We don't understand that prayer isn't necessarily my badgering God that He would therefore act as I would have Him to act, but for me to sit at His feet and allow Him to minister to my heart that my heart would reflect His heart. But in our culture today, when we find it so difficult to cultivate personal and intimate relationships with other human beings, which we discussed last week, I believe that too impacts and hinders our personal prayer lives. When you pray with someone who has truly cultivated that prayer life, it's incredible. It's life-changing to be around them. And a strong, healthy prayer life doesn't have to be indicated by a person standing up and throwing up their arms to God and all of a sudden begin to speak in the language of King James, the old King James. Thou, O Lord, thou art God. Oh, that person could really pray. But sometimes it's just a simple human just talking with God in such an intimate way that you know that something's happened. That they're talking to God directly. And of course, we've said this a thousand times. Why is it that when we talk to God, it's prayer, but when He talks to us, it's schizophrenia? We need to reevaluate all of this if we are truly going to be men and women of prayer. The Jewish people, prayer was in their DNA. The Jewish custom was to pray three times a day, and many of those in, uh, times were actually times where they traveled to the temple to pray there specifically. And their prayers would be centered on the incredible work of God in the life of the Jewish people. And that's really what begins to indicate, I believe, our necessity of knowing who God is for our prayer lives to be healthy and flourishing. The Jewish people had a long history with God, did they not? They understood that they were a people due to the fact that God had called them out. Of course, Abraham out of Haran, and then the children of Israel out of Egypt. And then even when they disobeyed and they were brought into Babylon, he brought them out of Babylon to become a people once again. They had a long history of the miraculous, powerful works of God. 
And so they approached God with a certain confidence, knowing what he was capable of doing. Now, even though they had personally experienced this, it often didn't lead them to belief, where they trusted God, which is a huge aspect of our conversation when it comes to prayer. Do we trust God? And I want to emphasize that word because we often say faith, and that's absolutely appropriate. But the, the essence of that word that we're trying to get to is trust. That when I bring a situation before the Lord in prayer, do I trust Him to respond? And do I trust Him enough to wait upon Him to respond in His timing? Do I trust Him enough that if, to allow Him to work it out as He would have it be worked out? I may throw all kinds of suggestions to him and how to overcome this difficulty or get around it or just eliminate it altogether, but he may say, no, I want you to go through it because in and through it is where character will be built. But know this, he'll say, that I will not leave you and I will not forsake you and I will be with you every step of the way. Is that sufficient for you? Can you say, okay, Lord, I will trust you in and through this difficulty that I'm experiencing. See, if we don't trust God, our prayer life is going to be greatly hindered, isn't it? And we're going to run to Google rather than running to God. But let us remember something about Google. Google simply responds to a question being asked. It never places that question in the context of your circumstances, does it? How many of you have made the mistake of trying to self-diagnose yourself over the internet? I've got a sniffle. I go to the internet. I've got contravirus. I've got it. I knew I did. It was when I, oh no, I bet you when I went to that Chinese restaurant, that's when I got it, you know. How many of us have made that mistake? We don't need doctors, right? We can just go to WebMD. All I have to do is click the symptoms. And then even if you don't have the symptom, you're like, you know, I did have that when I was 12 once. I better click it, you know. I better click that one too. And then it just comes up with this red screen flashing, you know, uh, get your life in order and affairs in order, you know. You're, You're done for. Because it doesn't put it in a context. And then you freak yourself out, and then you go to the doctor, and he or she is looking at you like, what are you worried about? you got a cold. Oh, no, no, I'm, I'm convinced that you have no idea what you're talking about because I went to WebMD and put in all my symptoms from the last 43 years, and this is what I got, you know. No, you, you just got a cold. Nope, nope, you doctors don't know a thing. Well, why did you come to me? Well, because I wanted a second opinion. Well, I've given you my opinion. And you know how it goes. When we come to God as a believer in Jesus Christ, 2,000 years removed from his first coming, I began to pray this week and I, and I asked the Lord to help me. How can I bring our congregation into this incredible historical understanding in 40 minutes? 
And I believe that he laid it on my heart to, to really focus on three aspects of God's character. Three aspects of God's character. And knowing these three aspects of his character, hopefully it will kindle a flame in you to have a greater reassurance in your prayer life than you've ever had before. Understanding that what Google cannot do for you, place your circumstances in a context, he can. And I believe that the Jewish people that we see throughout the book of Acts, who have come to saving faith in Christ and who are now Christians, they had this history with God. They had the Old Testament and were greatly familiar with it. And so when they approached God in this unique manner, because now people were free to approach Him everywhere through Christ, it wasn't limited as that woman at the well indicated. Well, some have said that we should worship on top of this mountain. Others say we should worship in Jerusalem. Where, where do you say that we should worship? And Jesus says, worship me in spirit and in truth. So when we approach God, even if we don't have a great understanding of the history, and that's why I so encourage you to read through the Bible, to get that understanding and that history and that revelation and knowing who God is and why God reacted the way he did and what God said to his people and how he pleaded with his people to do the right thing and they continuously did the wrong provoking him to the judgment in which he had to pronounce because he needed to keep his word. So how do we begin to look at an infinite God and reduce him to three things? Now, that's a grave challenge, and of course, it's going not to do him full credit, but I think it'll help us this morning and certainly help you possibly in your endeavors, in your personal prayer lives. The first of these three characters has to be his omniscience. His omniscience. That God knows everything. And there isn't anything that he does not know. He knows the beginning from the end, and he knows all that is in between at the same time. The famous A.W. Tozer wrote concerning the omniscience of God. He said, God knows instantly and effortlessly all matters and all matters and mind and every mind, all spirit and all spirits, all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures, every polarity and all polarities, all law and every law, all relations and all cause, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feelings, all desires, everything that is secret, he knows, all thorns and dominion, thrones and dominions, excuse me, all personalities, all things visible and all things invisible in heaven and in earth, motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven and hell. God knows it all. God knows you better than you know yourself. That's one of the great challenges of the American Christian. To submit to God's will, you have to admit that God knows you better than you know yourself. It is a struggle that every Christian entails at one time or another. 
because it will lead an individual to resist God or to submit to God. God says that he has every one of our hairs numbered, every one of the tears we've ever cried in a bottle. He knows us so well and so thoroughly. He knows what's perfect for us. Just in that revelation alone, when I am experiencing a circumstance, my mindset may, Lord, just remove this circumstance from me. Just remove this obstacle altogether. Or, Lord, if I'm praying for something, just grant it immediately. But God may know that you're not where you need to be, even though you fully feel that you do and that you are. And so God may delay the answer to his prayers. There's only one of three answers to God's prayers and, and, and to, from God in prayer. One is yes, one is no, and one is wait. Third is the hardest. And you may not know why you are waiting. Well, you may be waiting for the perfect circumstances to come about that God is going to bring about. In relationships, people say, well, why do I need to wait? Well, you need to wait to make sure that God is in this relationship. Don't just settle. But let's make sure that this is the one that God has for you. Now, I want to stop here for a moment because there have been several books written over the last 10 years that I think have been incredibly damaging to the body of Christ. These books were written to articulate a position concerning the God's will for the individual and how to know God's will as an individual. And the conclusion of these books were, was this, that God's will is fully and only found in his word for the personal individual. There is no personal will of God for you. So one young man who went to his pastor and asked him, should he pursue something? Because he had an opportunity to pursue. And he had another opportunity that also looked attractive. And this pastor's response to him was, God doesn't hold a plate of cookies before you and then yell at you for which one you choose. St stupid. I mean, that's ridiculous. Here's the deal, guys. Throughout the Bible, God clearly demonstrates that he has personal will for individual's life. When I asked the individual who was given that advice, does not God have a specific place for you as a member of the body of Christ that's unique for you? Yes, there is specific will. I may be a hand, you may be a foot. If I try to be a foot, I'll, the body will fall over. You try to be a hand and we won't be able to pick anything up. Because that's not how God created us. How many times did Paul want to go in certain directions in the book of Acts, but God corrected him and went, he went and had to go the other way? I believe that there is a personal will of God. In fact, I find it so apparent in Ephesians 2.10, the verse that everybody leaves out, of the equation of why an individual gets saved. Turn there with me. plate of cookies. Ephesians 2.10. Okay? Notice this with me. 
Two, uh, 8 and 9 are two of the most memorized verses in all of the Bible concerning our salvation in Jesus Christ. And both of us would say, I think all of us would say amen to these things. For Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no man or no one may boast. Well, amen. Praise the Lord, right? In the Greek grammar, they do not have punctuation. And the construction of the Greek grammar is the method in which you discover if a thought ends or a sentence ends, rather than by uh, the English manner of punctuations. In the Greek, verse 10 is connected to verse 8 and 9. 8 and 9 is how you are saved, and verse 10 is why you are saved. Notice with me. 4. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In the Greek, it's in the singular. Meaning the good works that God has created from the beginning of the foundations of the world for you are unique to you. That's why the original languages mean so much. So that's why I do believe that we need to pray and wait on the Lord. Well, how do I then discover His will for my life? Trust me, if you are positioning yourself in a place before the Lord in devotions and in prayer, God's will will find you. God's will will find you because this is why he saved you. This is the purpose that he has for you. But knowing that he is omniscient, that he knows everything, encourages us to come to him in our prayer life. Number two, that he's omnipotent. That means he's all-powerful. And that he's able to do anything according to his character. Because there are things that God cannot do because they are contrary to his character, such as lying and sinning. He can't do that because it's contrary to his character. But his omnipotence is demonstrated from Genesis to Revelation. There's nothing that's too difficult for God. So if I find myself standing before a mountain circumstance that seems overwhelming to me, what I need to do is then bring into my equation God. Okay, to me, this is incredibly big. To God, this is nothing, right? But you have to trust Him. That He is going to work it out or work you through or eliminate it altogether according to his will because he loves you too much to leave you the way he found you. Not only is he all-knowing, but he can do whatever he wants to do. He's not subject to anyone. He is sovereign. He doesn't have to go and consult someone else before he can act on your behalf. He is able to do whatever he has promised or whatever you ask of him to do according to his will. And number three, he's omnipresent. 
Jesus made it clear that in our prayer lives, let us be clear that God knows what we are in need of before we even ask of him. Because he's with us. He's everywhere. God's omnipresent. He is everywhere. I don't have to be in church to pray. I can be at home. I can be in my car. I can be at a restaurant. I can be in Aldi. I can be uh, anywhere. And God will be there with me. And he knows what I'm going through. I don't have to explain to him and give to him every detail. You know, there are times that our church receives prayer requests and they're 14 pages long. And I, I just like to share to that person, it's just like, God doesn't, he, he knows all of these things already. He knows all of these things already because he is with you. It doesn't matter where you are. Joseph in prison had as much confidence that God was with him as when he was sitting in a position of royalty. Moses, when he was out in the wilderness, knew that God was with him as much as he did at the moment he stood before that burning bush. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew that God was with them, even in the fiery furnace, because he was with them. And as a result, they understood that it didn't matter where they were, they could never escape God. Because God is always with us. And being with us, he knows what we are in need of. And this, this helps me prayer even more because now I know I'm not alone. Because when I feel alone, often that's when I'm discouraged and sometimes I don't pray. But I'm never alone with God. Now I'm going to tell you something. Theologically, it would be very scary if we left these three in and of themselves without knowing the heart and the character of God. You're talking about an omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent entity. But the heart of this entity is love towards you and I. And this love is manifested in all of those three. He loves you so greatly that he provided the greatest need that you had, and that was salvation in and through the person of Jesus Christ. And he demonstrated his love for you by sending his only begotten son. If he loves us to that degree to allow him to send his only son to die on our behalf, he loves us tremendously. But John goes one step further and he indicates very clearly that God is the originator of love. God is love, he says in his first epistle. And this love governs all of what God does. You see, when we think of God, sometimes we think of him in slices and we always want to make one slice bigger than the other. Some make his holiness bigger. Some make his righteousness bigger. Some make his love bigger. But it's equal in every way. So that means his righteousness and his love and his holiness and his omnipotence and his omnipresence and his uh, omniscience is all governed by the love that he has for you and I. Now that's incredible. And when we think of that, turn with me in closing to Hebrews chapter 4. All of these wonderful aspects have been provided for us in and through the person of Jesus Christ. Given then this invitation. In Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 we shall begin. As the writer of Hebrews states, Since then we have a great high priest, speaking of Christ, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. 
let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet he was without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. When you pray, you are entering into the throne room of God. And you are welcome due to what Christ has done on your behalf. God waits for you in anticipation as the father of the prodigal son waited for his son to return. We know that when we come, even in our low points, we're going to find help and grace in our time of need. Peter said it this way. He said, cast your cares upon him for he cares for you. This is our God. This is in whom we serve and follow. This is the one who invites you and I to pray each and every day and to spend time at his feet. So let us begin praying with our family at some point during the day, either in the morning or in the mid-afternoon or night, husbands praying with their wives, uh, wives and husbands praying with their children. Let's pray together as a church, knowing the God in whom we are coming to. Let's encourage each other in this incredible privilege that we call prayer. And it doesn't matter what you say and how you say it. Again, God knows your heart from the beginning. Sometimes when I'm in prayer meetings and individuals who are newly saved and, and they are just learning how to pray, sometimes their prayers are the best. There's no pretense. There's no hypocrisy. It's just like, oh, Lord, I don't even know what to say today, but thank you. Oh, I mean, that's all that needs to be said. That's all that needs to be said. There's nothing too small to pray for. I don't think anything bothers God. I learned that from my wife. There's nothing too small to pray for. As we were driving through the snowstorm the other night, coming uh, home from uh, Wednesday study, she goes, I love days like this. I'm like, yeah, because I'm driving, you know. And she goes, no, she goes, because it reminds me that day that I prayed and I asked God to help me find my keys in the snowdrift and he helped me find my keys in the snowdrift. There's nothing too big to pray for. There's nothing that God can't do. God has a tendency to be able to surprise us all. I can't pray for you. I wish I could. But if there's anything that I could share with you this morning, it's this. Prayer is one of the greatest privileges that we've ever been given. And as I get older, I find it to be more and more of a privilege every single day. As our world continues to spin in the directions that it is, with the thousand of voices that we have yelling at us constantly through the 
media and through the radio and through the internet, etc. Sometimes I just need to get away and to listen to that still small voice. To cut through it all. To, to ensure that I'm standing on that sure foundation of the rock who is Christ. This is prayer, folks. And this is something that we as a church need to continue to be reminded of as much as possible because I think it is the moment in time where we really engage in the battle. And engaging in the battle can be very tiresome. It can draw you and cause you to become weary. As Paul was explaining to us the armor of God in Ephesians 6, he finishes and concludes, but don't forget prayer because this is all of it right here. Don't forget prayer. This is where the rubber hits the road. It's a selfless selfless act. But God hears our words. And God even tells us what the number one reason for unanswered prayer is. It's because it's never been asked. Let us be men and women of prayer. Let's stop playing around and let's really begin to engage with the Lord in prayer. Amen. Father, we thank you for our time together. And Lord, we now ask that you would just burden our church to be a praying church, Lord. Father, that we would just pray that it would always be the first choice, the go-to. Let's pray about it. Let's seek our Heavenly Father, who's all-knowing, who is all-sufficient and who is everywhere. 